welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, an iTutor production. At iTutor, our vision is to ensure every child has access to education, regardless of circumstance. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I'm so glad you're joining us for today's episode. We have the Chief Executive Officer of Noodle, Mr. John Katzman. John, welcome to today's episode. Thank you for having me, Haley. I'm so glad you're here. I, I know that the title I just named for you is probably just a, a, a station in time of where you are at this very moment. I would love if you could share with our listeners a bit about your educational journey so they can understand just how you are moving the needle and how you have moved the needle in so many areas of education throughout your career. That's very kind. When I graduated uh, college, I started the Princeton Review and ran it for 20 odd years, first in terms of test prep and then a broader college admissions uh, kind of focus and graduate school. Left there after taking the public to create 2U, which works with universities to create online programs and um, ran that. And then uh, just before the IPO in that case, left to create a portfolio of companies that I called the noodle companies, trying to solve different problems in the education marketplace space. I, I you know, we'll talk about it more, but we, I think the biggest problem in education is it's very hard to measure anything in ways that matter. And as a result, the marketplaces are just kind of crappy. Like it's finding the right school for your kid, finding the right curriculum for your school, like any number of decisions that should be really data rich aren't. So people make a lot of bad decisions and there's a ton of inertia. And I thought, you know, let's hit at that in a variety of ways and see which ones stick. And one of them, the one I run, and RAM is Noodle itself, which works with universities across the U.S. at this point, about 30 universities, to use technology to lower the cost of higher ed while raising student faculty engagement and raising capacity and resilience. And it's been a great ride so far. This episode has been brought to you by itutor.com, your online solution for sourcing highly qualified educators. Join districts all around the nation that use iTutor to connect with thousands of licensed educators who fulfill both core and supplemental instructional needs. Choose iTutor.com. Online education when learning can't wait. Now back to this episode. I think you really live up to the term you have in your LinkedIn profile of education entrepreneur. Uh, where, where does you know, how, how, where do you find that spirit? How does that spirit move you as you think about your career? Does it, it's not a typical path for someone in education, right? So to call themselves an education entrepreneur, what does that mean for you? Well, number one, to me, a, a lot of us, almost everything you look at, you think, you know, that could be better in this way or that way, right? You, there, it's very rare that you say something is perfect. I feel that way on airplanes. So like, Airplanes seem to me to be pretty much perfect. Every, somebody smart has thought about every facet of that object. Whereas most objects, including air, airline service, there's probably something that could be better. To be an entrepreneur versus just a, a, a whiner is, it requires two things. First, 
that you're going to do something about it and not simply note that it could be better, but you know, you're going to step in and two, which ones you're going to step in on are things that are large enough to be scaled businesses that, that there are plenty of problems that you can decide to solve that are really important to solve. Like, you know, your kid's teeth aren't straight. Right. But, but which are the problems that actually you can create a, either nonprofit or for-profit business of, you know, a couple hundred million dollars, uh, you know, if you, if, if you attack it. So what are the problems out there and what are the problems big enough that you're going to solve? Is there, is this a process you go through in your head? Is this a, a framework you've, you've developed yourself? Like, how do you decide where your energy gets spent and where you invest your time and attention to solve problems? Mostly like everybody, you flow where the world uh, takes you a little bit. You know, you want to be opportunity driving and not opportunity driven. But, and in the broad context of, of you know, you want to be in the education space versus pharmaceuticals or something like you, you choose a lane. But within that lane, you know, there are an awful lot of, 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 of inviting targets. And uh, the only mistake is to, is to pick too many targets, something that I'm every so often guilty of. My mantra, because it takes somebody with the disease to recognize the disease in other people, is that the plural of focus is lack of focus. That you can't be focused on a lot of things. Pick something and do it. So I have found, you know, it's also just experiences. I have found that when I work in higher ed, higher ed moves slowly, but they understand innovation. And if you are patient and thoughtful, you can navigate that. Whereas K-12 really doesn't move at all. And I think we have a real governance problem to be solved there. And every time I do K-12, it, it ends badly. So I, I tend to like higher ed businesses more than K-12 businesses. I like B2C businesses a lot. I like dealing with people because the transaction is so straightforward. I'm going to do this for you and you're going to pay me that. Whereas it gets trickier when educators are involved and then administrators and in the case of K-12, then the administrator's administrator, you know, the, the district or the state. All the stakeholders. <laughs> leveling on All, leveling there are on a lot leveling. of stakeholders. <laughs> yes, yes. So there are some great businesses built in K-12. I'm just, I, I just personally have found it to be insanely frustrating. And so I, I, I tend to focus elsewhere. So higher ed is where you've planted roots. What do you think, you, you named a little bit about the, the pace at which higher ed moves, the, the willingness for adoption of, of innovation and ideas. What do you think as a society we're getting right about higher education? We're getting a lot right. You know, and it, it's so easy to take pot shots. A, the spirit of looking at the data of the scientific method of making your assertions have to prove themselves to your peers is alive and well and, and critically important uh, in an era of bullshit. Second is it's our fifth largest export, uh, service export. We bring students from all over the world. And I think America has benefited from, from, from the brains we bring in and from the values we export. Uh, through our schools. Third, the Silicon Valley narrative was, uh, you know, we're just going to have badges. We don't need higher ed. You know, we can, and the data suggests that that hasn't worked out, that, that, that educators like degrees because to some degree, 
what's baked into that is the same reason the New York Times is more reliable than Twitter or Facebook. It There's a system of people who are devoted to the institution and to making sure that its students and graduates are the ambassadors of its brand in a way that they feel good about. So who you bring in, what you teach them, how you evaluate them, it turns out a pretty good product that employers continue to find increasingly useful when they when they hire. So, so you don't think higher education institutions are going anywhere, even though the narrative in Silicon Valley had maybe pointed in that direction for some time. You think they're here to stay and the desire for folks to continue to get those degrees for a variety of reasons, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, the import-export narrative is also really interesting to me. Uh, it provides a, a worldly benefit, not just a singular benefit. It's not just the, the the egotistical desire for to improve oneself, but rather the kind of reverberations across society that higher education institutions offer. The strength of the U.S. economy over the past hundred years is largely due to the fact that we were in front on educating more people at a university level, and once other countries caught on to that and started beefing up their own higher education infrastructures is when they started closing the gap in terms of growth. This is a real driver of American innovation and, and American economic growth. So I think there's a lot good going on there. And the, the, the question is, number one, where do we go from here, right? Uh, the lifelong learning space is already like four times larger than the graduate school space, and it's growing pretty quickly. The notion that badges could replace higher ed is nonsense, but the notion that by the time you're 21, you've learned enough to take you through to retirement is also nonsense. How does higher ed become a more important player in the lifelong learning spaces? I think it'd be really interesting. And the other question is cost. Like it's just too expensive. And when people complain about universities, mostly they're complaining about the cost of it. I think that's a fairly accurate statement, at least for my own noble position over here in the k-12 sector i you know it's interesting because you're talking about the lifelong learner space you're talking about continuing education and i think for a lot of people there's an obvious there's an obvious kind of synergy between what you're naming as higher education and and beyond let's go backward though let's i'm gonna now reverse this back into the k-12 space I know there's a lot that you think we can as a society be doing differently to improve education. As you said, it has not changed. It has been stagnation central for the past couple centuries. But let's start with the positive. I'm an optimist. What do you think is going well in the K-12 sector? It has changed significantly in the past couple centuries, but it hasn't changed much in, in let's say, the last, I don't know, 80 years, right? We did, we did start educating more people, people of color, true, more true. we, we, Women. um, you know, it wasn't it was probably about a hundred years ago when we first really committed as a country to just to getting everybody at K-12 education. The other things we do well, people ask so much of schools that has nothing to do with education in terms of feeding West Spanish kids, in terms of being a hub for the community, uh, athletics, just Having students have a place to go uh, while their parents are at work, back when people went to work. And it does an awful lot of those things, you know, really uh, overall pretty well. Possibly to the detriment, to my earlier statement about focus, of teaching. 
you know, I think, I think the K-12 world pushes back pretty hard as it can when political forces work to hobble it and to hobble its ability to teach science or actual history or any number of other topics. And I think it's a strong community that believes in, in, in speaking truth. Well, and it's a right. I, yeah, I could not agree with you more. And I think we see as a society that's at play very heavily these days. Uh, and as a public institution, I think you are more uh, po- politics are more impactful, more kind of a driving force in a lot of how we operate. Absolutely. So, so John, now the real question is, where is there opportunity for improvement? What, what is, and I, and I know you have a really important perspective on this. What is it that we are do are failing in as it relates to K-12 education from your, from your vantage point? I think a lot of the, the problems, you know, I, I spoke about assessment and you think about how we assess not just an individual kid, but how we decide what's a good school, what's a good teacher, uh, what's a good curriculum. And there's so much in an information age that we could be doing to collect data in a more systemic way and to use that data to actually affect change wildly more than we do. There are two things that, that I consider both missed opportunities for real reform over the past 30 or 40 years. The first one is this notion of one size fits all, this notion of I know what every kid should learn, which is such a moronic statement, right? Like anybody who said, every kid should know this, like when when has that turned out to be right? They clearly have never been in a classroom though. (laughs) Or maybe they have and they've just forgotten what being in a classroom is actually like. And they've never had a sibling or two kids and realized that, you know, they're just different. People yeah. want to learn different things that are good at learning uh, different things. And the notion, once, once you walk down the road of one-size-fits-all education, it just can't go well. And, you know, there's, there's something I talk about all the time. I, I forget where I first read it. But in every religion, there's this, like, moment where... Back in the day, you were saying, well, our God is like way better than your God. And uh, and we're going to go to war and we're going to kick your butt because we have this you know, terrific God. And then they would lose some war and have this like, I won't say come to Jesus moment because this is across a lot of religions. Come, come to this moment of like, wow, you know, we can, we can either agree that our God maybe is that great or doesn't care that much. Or we're just not praying hard enough. And, and that notion of we're just not praying hard enough, every time we hit a place where one size fits all fails, we come in and say, well, it's just an execution problem. We just aren't good enough at teaching all of the same stuff, like, like the same stuff to every kid. And I'm just curious at the moment somebody says, yeah, this has been litigated. It's a bad idea. Let's move on. And that comes to Common Core and it comes to any number of things that we're going to be the silver bullet, that this is what we should teach everybody, the new math that didn't turn out to be a a big win, the whole language. That's number one. So this last round of it, Common Core, made me insane because we have been down this road so many times. And the only good news is I won a lot of money 
from friends who insisted that uh, Common Core was going to result in higher NAEP scores. And over, you bet on it. Right you bet on that. Bet on it. <laughs> the easiest money I've ever made. So, so that's number one. And number two is in terms of technology and data, we walked in, and I, I, I somewhat blame the Gates Foundation and others, although there, there are plenty of people you can look at, and they walked in with data. They walked in with the chops to collect and use it, and they said, you know, what we're going to use data for is to figure out which are the bad schools and which are the bad teachers, and we'll close the bad schools and we'll fire the bad teachers. And then you would kind of get them drunk and say, well, yeah, how many teachers are bad? And they would go, oh, like half. And it's like, okay. So now we've drawn the lines. We know exactly what data is going to be used for. It is an attack on the entire system. And what's come out of that is a deep skepticism about technology and about data, that this system is more a surveillance tool than it is a support tool that the data is only going to be used to make my life harder, not better. And as a result, the, the way schools use data is just wildly less effective than, than the way anybody uses data in any other part of the world. Like we, we have poisoned the well for data and for technology, and it's really going to take a concerted effort to gain back the trust of educators. John, are we even measuring the right data? Right, because you're, you're naming the kind of data that we've been using to effectively determine if schools are successful, if teachers are successful. Is there other data we should be considering and paying attention to as it relates to the success of the students? Absolutely. So let's, let's start from a, a thought experiment. I'll bet you that I could get everybody who's watching or listening here to agree on the goals of K-12 education. Right. And everybody's kind of uh, wincing and, and laughing. And the answer is, of course, you can. The goal of K-12 systems is that the students you have over the next 40 or 50 years will be well-employed in jobs that they like and that pay a living wage. They'll be happy and healthy, low suicide rates, low alcoholism, low obesity, and they'll be good members of society. They won't go to prison. They'll vote and they'll be engaged members of the community. And you could tweak around the edges of that. You could say, well, this is more important than that. You know, what about self-actualization? Like you could play, but at the root, if that's what the school system turns out, we feel pretty good about ourselves, right? Like that's a good start. You probably should have put a bet down before you did that because you're clearly a betting person. I am a betting person. <laughs> only, on, only on random impossible to prove assertions and only uh, where the bet is push-ups uh, for the most part. Um, <laughs> but if you think about that, if you think about, okay, yeah, those are reasonable goals in one form or another, and we can argue around the edges, but those are good things to measure. Well, we don't measure any of them. We don't actually look longitudinally at this kind of school versus this kind of school. Here are all the inputs. Here's what they're doing. Here's what curriculum materials are using, teacher training and, and professional development and just look and over the next 10 years how do the students do in things that really matter that we all agree matter and you don't have to wait 40 years to have a pretty good hunch you can look at a middle school how do their kids do in high school on those measures and do they go to college and then do they graduate college so it's like one of those uh, 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 images on the net that, you know, it, 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 back when bandwidth was a little bit slower, 
started fuzzy and then, you know, and then sharpens, you'll have a pretty good hunch within three or four years what's working. And then a better hunch in five years and a better hunch in 10 years. And meanwhile, you're continuing to evolve your practice based on what you've learned. That's the way you use data, right? In large numbers, kind of like an epidemiologist and not in any way, neither formative nor summative, just how do we make the system better? So I think when you start with data, you've got to start with measuring the right things. And the right things aren't things you can measure right now, like grades or attendance or so forth. Those are all gameable and they really don't matter unless they turn out to be highly predictive. And the fact is, as you focus more and more on them, they are less and less predictive of long-term outcomes. I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, who should be measuring that, right? Like I asked this question, like everybody, everybody along the stage, the journey of a, a child growing to adults, first you have K-12 as the stakeholders that care the most, right? The school system. Then you have higher education or career and technical readiness and folks that are moving into the, you know, career space instead of choosing to go to college and university. But I wonder, like economists seem to be very, very worried and attuned and, and attentive to this type of data science. I feel as if, especially if it's predictive of our workforce, that would be the, the population of folks who want to pay attention to this problem. Yeah, look, the, the first thing, are you going to be employable and employed and agile enough that as the economy changes, you can get another job and it'll be good. So we're not creating these cogs that as soon as anything changes, you know, that become useless. If I had to list among the three, that would certainly be an important one. But health and happiness has got to be up there somewhere, right? And citizenship has got to be up there someplace. And so the economists can look at the first one, but the rest of us, especially as parents, probably will look at all three. I was just thinking the, the second one, it speaks to me very deeply as a parent as well. I, I care not about much about with relate relation to my own children. I care that they are good people and they are healthy and they are happy. So you're right. I think parents will be the, the real data scientists on that front. Right. And and this stuff, by the way, there's there are plenty of ways to measure it, right? Like we we do have a sense from the IRS of what you're making. We do have a sense from all sorts of uh, uh, data feeds as to your health or your state of mind. We Gallup polls thousands of people a night. And both uh, voting records and pr uh, prison records are, are, are in our hands. Like there are starting points for this thing that it's really just a matter of caring and patience. Like the fact is that we jumped into things like Common Core with almost no evidence that it would matter, right? We just said, oh, this is intuitively a good idea that everybody should learn this here you're really taking a scientist's approach and saying, well, we're, we're, we are in fact trying different things. We're doing this gigantic hundred year uncontrolled experiment all the time. And let's just start controlling it. Let's just start actually paying attention to what we're doing with, with different kids in different schools and then wait around to see how it goes. So how much of the onus of paying attention to that is on the government? Federal, local, state, like how, how much responsibility to own and manage that should we depend on our elected officials for? It's got to be, the state has the data. It's very, very hard to imagine. I, the education is local enough that an initiative like that from the feds would be hard. Anybody below the level of state doesn't have access to the data. Anybody outside the education system doesn't have access to the data either. So 
they're doing all this through a screen door. Like I think the the logical place to do it would be at the state level. But by the way, gathering the data in a systemic way with a good attitude is like the first thing we can do. It's by no means the end game, but it is certainly a uh, you know table stakes. Like if if we're going to take the scientific method seriously in terms of not just teaching it but using it, um, you start with data. At iTutor, we talk often about OODA loops, observe, orient, decide, act, do it again, do it again, do it again. I hear you. You have to start with the data, but that's not where you end. Um, I'm wondering, too, though, as we're talking, I know the last time we chatted and as we were getting to know each other and prepare for today's recording, we were talking about a lot about reinvention and some some really quality testing of reinvention and you named it right a little bit at the state level different states feeling willing or different local officials feeling willing to try new ideas i'm going to twist this question a little bit because i'm not just going to ask purely about the reinvention but what do you think we can take from higher education and bring to k-12 to help or, or, or what can inform us about how to improve the, the current operational state if you if you look at the last 30 years there are a couple of things that we can take from k-12 and a couple of things we can take from higher ed like what we learned through common core and the accountability movement what we've learned from the charters and the choice movement that's all k-12 in higher ed the move online and uh at this point if you look at graduate school, if you look at adult learners, it's already half online and moving more that way. And so, you know, how do they think undergrad versus grad, adult learners versus kids? Where's the point at which online learning can be a more important part of K-12? In what ways? You know, where do you bring in tech? And the notion of competition. No university really has geographic hegemony. And to the degree they do, like state systems, you talk to a chancellor at any state system and he'll tell you, or she'll tell you the, that, that each university within the system pushes back hard on any encroachment by the central authority on their academic freedom or, or what they choose to teach, how they choose to teach it, who they have teaching. So even within a system, in almost every case, the real power to make decisions is happening at the school level, right? The system controls the purse strings and, and very little else. And that's, I mean, where you see true innovation in schools is where you shine some light. I, you know, this week I actually posted an article on my LinkedIn about a school in South, in, excuse me, in North Carolina that had been really braced and prepared for the pandemic prior to the pandemic hitting in the sense that they had been a technology first school, but they had also been a social emotional first school. They had already invested in infrastructure and systems and policies that supported the well-being of their students. And so the transition to remote learning, they thrived. And I think you're right. I think learning from educators and school leaders that are really forward thinking about how they measure success, right, to your earlier point, and what matters more than just performance towards a, a, a bunch of kind of uniform standards, that's where you see children thrive. Yeah, I, um, you're there. So the question for me would be, if you synthesize that, imagine a state said, and I'm, I'm actually looking for a state who wants to play, I think I have a university or two, and, and, and then I need a, 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 a 
pretty good sized funder, but the state could be that. Imagine you said, we're going to spend three years. We're going to bring in educators from a variety of levels, but we're also going to bring in people who really understand the transportation industry and the trans transformation of that industry by things like Uber. We're going to bring in people who really understand the construction industry and why it costs so much more to build a school than, than, than to build anything else and how we might think about construction of schools differently and ownership of those buildings differently. We're going to bring in labor people from other industries and, and say, what are, what are ways of empowering teachers, but having unions that in no way are seen to be or are inhibiting innovation? Like, how do we, how do, we do labor differently, right? And you look across every part of schools with different groups of experts from other areas and from education. And the, the goal over those three years is to create from a clean sheet of paper, this is what a state system might look like. These are the laws and regulations that would be part of that. And a state willing to say, if it doesn't look crazy, let's run that side by side with our current system. The problem isn't in the school. The problem is everything above the school level. Let's give schools a choice. Do they want to be in that system or do they want to be in this system? And over the next decade, let's see how it goes, right? And and you have the regular legislative process on the one side, continuing to evolve regs. You have your school board, you have all the stuff you have now. And on this side, you have this new system, which in my eyes would probably not have school boards uh, or districts. And you know, since it's a kind of V1, you're evolving it over that time. But then the question is, how happy are the teachers? How do they retain? How happy are the students? How do they thrive? Like, what are the measures that we were talking about? And right from the start of the experiment, we know what we're looking for. And if we're right, if this system is better as it evolves, we just start moving schools over. And at the end, you just shut down this governance system, and now you've got a new, clean, shiny one. And you don't try to do it in a week. You're thoughtful about creating it and you don't try to measure it with like an increase in test scores in year one. You look at it over time and against real measures. This is an audacious idea. It's an audacious idea and it's one that challenges the status quo, which is where innovation comes from. As we started with, you said there are two, two sides of the coin, entrepreneurs and whiners. This sounds like the entrepreneurial spirit coming up again to rear its head. And I won't call it an ugly head because I think it, innovation on behalf of students is never ugly. It can't be that the system we came up with eight years ago or more, 100 years ago, is the very best pot that what we have now, the set of federal, state, district laws and regs is as good as it gets. It just can't be that we have now perfected K-12 education governance. I think that is a, a really interesting thought. And I think that the listeners here today are, are going to definitely have more questions after hearing this kind of 30,000 foot view of 
innovation and reformation of the education system that you've laid out here. I'm curious, do you have a short list of states you you want to see taken on the A-B testing? It has to be a big enough state where you can do an A-B test that will be significant. It's probably going to be a state that is centrist or leans right because like a New York, it would be a great place to test it, except it's never going to get through. Like it, 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 there's, there's just too much pressure for the status quo. So, and, and it probably shouldn't be, you know, one of the largest states in the country. It can be a good sized state that, that, you know, it'll be a governor who wants to be president, you know, who says, let's take on a tough issue in a different way than we've taken it out before. Let's not just blather about like, I'm going to increase funding or I'm going to increase accountability or I'm going to give every kid a scholarship to whatever it, it, it hits at something deeper and and harder. Um, I, I got to know Paul Volcker uh, late in his uh, life, and he had very strong feelings about people who believe in public policy versus public administration, that everybody wants to make policy. But the reason people don't trust government is not necessarily that they don't agree with the policies. It's the government executes them so badly. And what if we really focused here, instead of the curriculum that we're going to solve it with new math or with Common Core, what if we focus on the execution of a governance system that makes sense, that allows for innovation, that encourages measurement, just a different approach. And, and so he'll probably be a, or she'll be, or there'll be a, uh, maybe with a tech background or a data background, because because a lot of this is is stuff that's been learned in, in industries that are that are fiercely innovative. And perhaps an entrepreneurial background, right? It, usually entrepreneurs are a little bit more, are a little less averse to risk. So this this requires a little bit more willingness to branch out of what is expected. I, you know, I wonder sometimes, uh, I've seen a lot of data that entrepreneurs gamble less. And certainly like things like going to Vegas and, you know, betting the slots, I don't do it. And I don't think it's a matter of risk. I think it is we we can't possibly be as good as we can be so i'm not going to say i'm not going to crap on the system and say it's a terrible system it it just is a suboptimal system and the notion of examining it and looking to change it is not about taking risks it's about a a willingness to to re-examine assumptions mostly when you really screw something up badly it's because your assumptions were wrong there's a lot about our society and the way we educate our youth that I think most folks would agree are in some serious need of reformation and change. And I, you've, you've here laid out one method to do that, which I love. I, you know, John, as we're wrapping up our time together today, I always ask this question, but I'm going to tweak it slightly for you. I always ask, what advice might you give an educator at the start of their career? But I'm going to ask you what advice you might give an education entrepreneur at the start of their career? I've given this advice. I think a lot of people assume that people like to learn because the kind of people who we are and who your listeners are do. Educators like to learn. Most people, they actually don't like to learn. Learning is hard. It's painful. It's not fun a lot of times. And, uh, and you do it because you have to, either because somebody's grading you or because more as you get to be an adult, I want to be over there. And in order to do that, in order to code this, I need to learn this 
language. In order to get along in Germany, I need to learn German. You've got to develop systems that start with the assumption that, that you're not going to just sprinkle sugar on it and all of a sudden education becomes like this great tasting fun thing it's hard and you've got to love that hardness you've got to love it the way an athlete loves working out they hate working out they do it because it gets them it gets them in in the shape that they want to be in and and they try to make it as social as possible they try to make it as engaging as possible but but they acknowledge at a core that it itself is not fun there's like a love of the game quote that used to be on TV and the uh, commercials on Sunday on Sunday night footballs. Like, like you gotta love the game. I'm like hearing that echo a bit here in your statement. You don't do these things because it's easy. You do it because you love the idea or you love the the thought of bringing opportunity and education to people in different ways, places, and spaces. Well, and for an education entrepreneur, for somebody who wants to, uh, again, either a nonprofit or for-profit to create change, taking from that and saying, okay, things are as they are for a reason, right? The inertia that exists isn't going to magically part when I walk through. And I've got to be attacking something that is large enough to, to, to put the next decade of my life in because there are no immediate miracles. Like this stuff, education's hard, learning is hard, and uh, building an education a business, and again, uh, or organization, you know, is a commitment. So it's gotta be worth doing. It's gotta be a big enough target that you wake up every morning saying, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill that. I love it. That is great advice. John, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, your expertise, your experience with all of our listeners here today. I'm really grateful that you joined us for today's episode. Thanks again. It's hard for rambling. I no, listen, the, the rambling is where the good, the good stuff comes from. It's where the, it's where the real insights happen. All right. Have a, a pleasure having you, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at itutor.com.